Welcome to the Judgment Call Podcast, a podcast where I bring together some of the most curious minds on the planet. Risk takers, travelers, adventurers, investors, entrepreneurs, or simply mind bogglers. To find all the episodes of this show, please go to iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, or go to judgmentcallpodcast.com. For more resources, including how to become a guest, how to advertise, and to see all the lectures, podcasts, and books I would like to would like you to listen to or read, please also go to our website at judgmentcallpodcast.com. Like this show, please consider leaving a review on iTunes or like us and subscribe to us on YouTube. That will make it easier for other users like you to find us later on. This episode of the Judgment Call Podcast is sponsored by Mighty Travels Premium. Full disclosure, this is also my business. What we do at Mighty Travels Premium is to find the best travel deals for you as they happen. We do that in economy, premium economy, business and first class, and we screen 450,000 new airfare deals every day just for you and present the best based on your preferences. Thousands of subscribers have saved up to 95% on the airfare deals. In case you didn't know, Americans and Europeans can already travel to more than 80 different countries again, South America, in Africa, and in Eastern Europe. To try out Mighty Travels Premium for free, go to mightytravels.com slash MTP. If that's too much for you to type, just type in mtp4u.com, mtp4u.com to start your 30-day free trial. Today, I have Darren here, and Darren is a CLA entrepreneur. Uh, he used to be CEO of CrowdFundX and uh, is now CEO of Issuances.com, a marketplace to raise funds for startups. Welcome to the Judgment Call podcast, Darren. Torsten, thank you so much for having me. Happy Friday. It is a pleasure to be on with you. Thanks. Thanks for doing this. Uh, I realize we had some technical issues, but I think we're gonna, we have figured them out now. No, listen, I'm, I'm happy to be on, and uh, this is great, man. Hey, um, I know you brand yourself as a serial entrepreneur as well, and I know that it takes a special kind of crazy to go this route in your life. Um, what made you decide to become a serial entrepreneur and go through the ups and downs? You know, um, I'm a glutton for punishment. Uh, I think, <laughs> you know, I was selling uh, Oracle software for 10 years, and in the middle of that career, I realized that I didn't want to be selling Oracle software into my 60s, uh, nor into my 50s. And there's a lot of people that do that. They make a lot of money and they got the golden handcuffs and you can build a great life and career and you make a lot of money. But there was something about that that seemed very depressing to me. And um, I decided to start a business. And uh, I've been an entrepreneur now for about 10 years and there's something about the idea of being the master of your own destiny and for good or for worse, right? For, for, for good and bad, obviously, there's no guarantees uh, in, in the entrepreneurship game. But there's something so fulfilling and um, uh, uh, the sense of freedom you have that it, it is a little bit addicting. And having been on this both sides of the fence now as an employee, 
and having a career and working for others for over a decade and now being my own boss and having my own company and my own team, I wouldn't trade this uh, for anything. I would never want to go back to being an employee and working for anyone else. And I'm probably unemployable anyways. Um, I'm a little bit of a misfit. I've been fired from jobs. I've been called a loose cannon by multiple managers. And so there's a strong likelihood that if I tried to become an employee, I'd get fired again. Um, and so it's really the sense of freedom, the idea that uh, my outcomes are a result of my own efforts. And it's uh, extremely rewarding. And at this point, I think I've started maybe four companies. I'm not the guy that started 20. God forbid, I don't think I'd ever oh, want to start 20 companies. Why do I have companies? you on the podcast then? <laughs> oh, uh, okay, that, that's it then. No, I mean, this is this is hard. I know I, it's it's more of a calling than a choosing. And um, I was really, that's how it felt, feels for me as well. And I, sure. uh, it's odd. It's sometimes hard to explain. I don't really have a rational reason myself. If someone asks me, I'm like, I feel like it's a calling. And everyone is like, yeah, but that's uh, weird. And right. um, then I listened to Jordan Peterson's lectures about uh, psychology and uh, uh, the uh, big five traits, you know, they were actually coming out of statistics. And what he's been saying is most, once you have a certain personality type, you are not, you're not happy if you do something that is against your personality type. So if your personality sure. type predicts you're an artist and you become um, a worker in a shoe factory, but you don't do any art in your free time. I mean, art is always the problem that it doesn't make a lot of money because so many people right. are interested in it. So there's a lot of competition. But he says there isn't much choice that you've got. Um, ideally, you find something that makes enough money so you're not hungry and you can raise a family. Yes. Beyond that, you really have to follow your calling. And I was like, man, this is great. I mean, I love you, Jordan, for this. It, it kind of makes these weird choices that we make and, and people say, oh, this is not going to make any money and this is weird. Why don't you have a real career? I actually studied law. I felt it's hard if you if you have a rationality or rational to do something useful, to do something stable, and then you decide completely different. You always feel a little bad. That's right. And, uh, people might not admit this, but... A lot of times, there's always someone coming that gives you that conscience. It might be your wife, it might be your dad, it might be your mom, someone from you grew up with, and you're like, hmm, wait a minute, why am I actually doing this? No, that's right. I mean, look, I think, I think most entrepreneurs, at some point in the journey, usually at the earliest points, there's something inside them that's telling them they want more. They're not happy working for another company or person. And for me, that feeling took time to develop. It definitely didn't hit me over the head with, with a brick when I was 20 years old or even 25. It was really uh, in my late 20s, early 30s, I started to get that inkling that there was something else I was I was seeking and was unfulfilled in my current uh, career. And it sounds like you you felt that too. And I think a lot of people do. And the the, the trick, of course, is to lean into that because it's really a gut feeling. And it's a very personal experience, the desire to be an entrepreneur, to be a business owner. And I think that a lot of people may have this feeling and they actually do the opposite. They lean away from it because it scares them. It intimidates them. It generates feelings of fear or uh, un unease, unease because it involves risk. It involves the risk of not knowing whether or not you will succeed if you leave your day job and go all in on your own business. 
It involves the risk of not being able to pay your bills, going behind on your mortgage, going into debt, taking out a line of credit and guaranteeing that line of credit. And these are things that scare the shit out of the average person. And they scared the shit I mean, out of me shook, too. Right? They shook. They shook. I, I'm like, I, you just made up the. You, you just promoted not being an entrepreneur. I feel. That was like <laughs> you had six. You had six arguments, and I'm like, okay, hmm, maybe, maybe we shouldn't do this. But no, you're right. I mean, this this element of risk is the downside to it, right? But there's this incredible upside, and the incredible upside is that you can kind of put something into being that that. You felt this is you have control over. It's something that is like, a, like almost like a child, like a brain child that you put out there. Obviously, you also get proven right. Like your ego always is is part of that. But you make a bold prediction. You go out there. Um, everyone says you nuts. And then you're right. like, okay, I'm I'm going to show you guys. And uh, you know, five years later, ten years later, now this cycle is actually not as bad anymore because a lot of startups after six months, you know, what you're up to. So it's you don't have to be this. This the uh, Levi Strauss, so, you know, it takes 50 years until you actually make money from this crap. Yeah, look, you're, you're right. And, you know, despite all of these reasons not to do it, I encourage people to take the risk. And you'll never know what you're capable of until you bet on yourself. And I think that a lot of people would be surprised just how capable they are. There's something really interesting that happens, you know, when uh, a person makes a bet on themselves and they have to succeed or else X or else there's some consequence or some pain or suffering involved. And it's, it's hard to understand what, uh, what you're capable of until you're put on the spot. It's kind of like maybe fight or flight, you know, the adrenaline rush, like you, you, you've got to win the fight or you're dead or you're toast or you're going to get hurt. And I think people underestimate what they're really capable of. And so the only way to find out is to take that risk. And, you know, look, here was the thing for me at the time that, that I made that decision, i had had a career for 10 years. And again, everybody's situation or circumstance is different. But for me, I had a successful career in software sales. I was very well networked. I knew a lot of people in my industry. And so what I, what I realized is that in a worst case scenario, if my business were a total disaster, it imploded, I ran out of money, I could always make a call and go back into that industry. Maybe I wouldn't have the same title. Maybe I wouldn't be at the same company. Maybe I would take a, a pay cut from what I was at when I left. But at a minimum, I was a guy that had a reputation. And so I think a lot of people have to have some confidence that you are a capable person. You've been employed. You've had a job in the past. You can get a job in the future. And maybe there's a gap. Maybe it's two months, three months. You have to burn through some savings. But what if you succeed? What do you do then? What if your gut was right? What if you are capable? What if you can start a successful company? What if you could change the world? Imagine not knowing that because you were too intimidated to make the risk. And that's the, the most unfortunate thing for people that want to do something. They have this inkling or inclination, but they never have enough confidence to actually make the move. And the first part of being an entrepreneur is to make the decision to, to make you know, start a business to go all in on your own company. Yeah, I mean, I, I fully agree. It's very much a necessary step to to come to this conclusion yourself and kind of put yourself out there and, and realize you have a lot of things that you can control, but there's a lot of things outside of your control. And I think this is for sure more worried about that they do a great job, but it's not, you know, it's kind of like having a bad boss, right? You, you yes. do something great, 
and your boss is like, hey, you're terrible because X. And that's that's a very unfortunate situation, I feel, for a lot of people that think, uh, I have a certain idea about where, how this business works, especially if I've worked in another company that does something similar, but then I go out there and maybe customers won't appreciate me because I'm so much smaller as a company. Um, and I'm not right. Oracle, you know, you can't sell enterprise software at the startup anymore. I mean, maybe you can, but you gotta be as innovative as you are. It's, it's a tough marketplace for smaller companies. And I feel this kind of leads me into this, this theme I often have on this, on this podcast. And I know we're gonna go into, into crowdfunding soon because this is a wonderful topic I, I wanna really dive into. Just sure. one thing I wanted to get your, your opinion on it. What I, what I see out there is this Peter Thiel's big stagnation. And uh, I think we're just at the end of that. Hopefully it's the end and it's not just a, a false uh, positive signal. And what happened in the last 50 years, um, since the 70s, that's a piece that there was relatively, there was entrepreneurship, but there was relatively little impact on society as a whole compared to technological progress that was there, which was pretty stunning and um, on a logarithmic scale. But the adoption cycles, haven't shrunken as much. So we, especially in the last 20 years, there was a lot of new technology video conferencing 20 years ago. There was right. um, a lot of things that, the, that eventually now comes out as consumer internet, but wasn't really adopted. And um, that created a lot of havoc, I feel, for small, often enterprises, small um, ventures that really had to reach out to a large consumer base to pull this off. And the consumers really weren't interested. The consumers were like, okay, this is good, but I really don't care. And the, there was the app store. I'm not saying there was no success, but what I felt is, and that's Peter Thiel's answer as well, there were small islands of success, especially in software development, sometimes more B2B, sometimes more B2C. And there were other islands of success, like in finance, which might be because of the leverage, might be because of the Federal Reserve. But what sure. I'm trying to get to is, for entrepreneurs, it wasn't such a great time. It doesn't mean there's not hundreds of thousands of successful entrepreneurs. And my question is a little, are we at the end of this? Do you think the next 20 years will be completely different? Will they more resemble what we had during the last 50 years? And if so, what changed? That's a really good question, a very deep question. Um, I'm hopeful that the next you know, 20 or 30 years, we will see tremendous change. It certainly feels like there's an opportunity for uh, real breakthroughs to be made. And you know, one of the things that Peter Thiel an analogy, he said, I think I saw a video of him saying this the other day. We talked about science and there's this been a massive increase in the number of very well-educated scientists in the United States and globally, but there's not a lot of creative scientists, people that actually think yeah. about how to solve a new problem. And so it's like you imagine you go to college, you want to be a scientist, or physicist, and you go through these courses and you read books and you follow a process and you're kind of like a you know, a uh, uh, what do they call book smart, educated scientist? But it's the one percent. It's a very small minority of thinkers, creative. I think this is yeah. This is a that's massive ton of thanks, uh, Yeah, it's like how, how do you how do you actually, how do you take that that education and 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 now do something new and solve a solve a problem that could be solved differently or apply innovation. And so that that I think that innovation is what's been missing um, in a lot of these um, industries and professions, and certainly in higher education. Uh, but I'm optimistic. I feel like, and and part of this is as an entrepreneur, I'm a little bit of an eternal optimist, maybe to a fault. Uh, 
but I think there are enough signs right now to point to a very bright future. And, you know, look, you could you could say the COVID and vaccine that came out within the last 12 months, the process to get that vaccine was incredible. The speed at which scientists and Pfizer and BioNTech out of Germany and Moderna are coming up with vaccines for something that, you know, a year ago, this basically didn't exist, wasn't a problem, is absolutely astonishing. I hope we can see more breakthroughs like that, not just in science and health, but in technology, in energy, uh, in climate change. There's there's so much need right now. Um, so I'm hopeful that we will see a lot of change and progress over the next few decades. Yeah. Well, the, the, the catalyst of COVID is absolutely clear. It's, it, I almost feel like people kind of wanted what happened to COVID a little bit. You know, they maybe wouldn't admit it. But they kind of, oh, takeout is so much better than going to a restaurant, so much more comfortable, and video conferencing is so much easier. But, you know, the other people don't really accept yes. it as much, so maybe I just got to travel. So it, it, there was this subconscious leaning towards it, and COVID kind of forced everyone, and especially the, the restrictions that we have in the U.S. or everywhere. They kind of forced people into new sets of behavior. So I think that's that's great, too. I think maybe next time we don't need as bad a crisis. And one other thing I always speculate about in my mind, my evidence is not as big, is that, you know, the, the policy of the Fed to always inflate is a really dangerous one. Because if you look at the last 200 years, there were periods of deflation, then there was inflation, there was inflation, deflation, and they both had a certain amount of, were run through a certain amount of time off, deflation was a little longer, and then inflation just jumped. Why this is important is the periods of deflation, so basically meaning there's the amount of purchasing power contracts. What's great about this, it forces you to come up with new solutions and it pushes up often small entrepreneurs. It doesn't keep the old zombie companies around. It gets rid of them because they basically have no way to pay their employees. And then little entrepreneurs yes. can build a business and make it big relatively quickly. I mean, a friend of mine started a catering company about 30 years ago. I'm saying it's a billion-dollar company now. I mean, oh, catering, wow. I mean, I mean catering's been around forever, right? Of course. So sure. it doesn't have to be a technology necessarily, but this dying of the old zombies gives just, you know, think about United, American, and Delta would have gone bankrupt. Sounds terrible, right? Because the U.S. doesn't have any flight capacity, and that would be a bad thing. But, you know, it, it, we still would still have the planes. We would still have pilots. There would be a new name yes. on this thing. It would be definitely funded. It would be definitely run. Maybe call, you could call it spirit, but I don't love spirit. And then the airline would be around a month later. Like, people think that these big companies are the only way, like um, Walmart is the only way to shop. Um, it's not. You can put a different logo on it. Maybe have it half the size or double the size, whatever is better. And then just start with something that's, you know, organically grown. I think this is what hasn't happened at least the last 30 years since the Fed is this crazy, now we know, of course, I didn't know that in the 90s, crazy inflationary policy. And uh, I don't know what happened in the 70s, but that seems to be part of the equation. And if this is still around the Fed policy, so as long as that doesn't change, we won't see this full amount of growth. Doesn't mean we won't see a lot more technology adoption. I'm as hopeful as you are. Sure, sure, understood. Let's let's go to funding. I mean, it's it's a big topic. I know very little about it, to be honest. Um, I know the the crowdfunding startups have come out of nowhere, and I looked into it ten years ago. Actually, I screened a couple of business plans to invest into it, and I always thought, oh, this is it's not going to go anywhere. I was that right. pessimistic because of such a long history in the United States of not being able to sell direct shares as a startup directly to investors. There were several, and maybe you, you can help us understand that, there were lots of different intermediary steps, which made it almost impossible. 
Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, if we look at what's happening right now in the, the realm of capital markets, there's this retail investor renaissance that is taking place. And you're seeing it in different ways. On the one hand, you see it with apps like Robinhood that very quickly scaled you know, to 12, 13 million uh, users, 13 million new brokerage accounts created on an app because retail investors want an opportunity to uh, use an easy-to-use app and, and buy stocks, and likely stocks um, who, who they can understand and companies whose products and services they use in their everyday lives. Well, in, in our industry, which is really you know equity crowdfunding, um, I, I think there's also a, a rise of the retail investor. There's a renaissance happening. And the origin of this industry was really um, more than 12 years ago in the 20, 2008 financial crisis. Uh, the JOBS Act was really a response to the 2008 financial global financial crisis. And the concept was simple, was they wanted to make uh, it easier for small and emerging businesses to access capital, to raise capital. And at the same time, they wanted to level the playing field for everyday Americans. And in fact, investors around the world, let them be, become owners in private companies uh, at earlier stages. And so now, you know, these exemptions took time. They're called securities exemptions. And uh, we happen to be experts in one of these exemptions called Regulation A+. And it allows companies to raise $75 million. They can market their investment broadly. And they can raise capital. Uh, the companies that use this tool can raise capital from anyone over the age of uh, uh, 18 globally. They can legally invest. And it's incredible if you think about what that means for a company that has 100,000 customers, even 5,000 customers, a person that has an audience on TikTok or a following on Twitter or a popular newsletter, and they've got a big subscriber base. This is incredibly empowering for individuals and companies. It allows them to turn their customers into investors. It allows them to be creative in how they market investments and create awareness, not just for their uh, investment opportunity, but for the company itself. And so what, what effectively happens when you run one of these campaigns is you're marketing your brand while you're raising capital. And for some companies, that means they're actually acquiring thousands, if not tens of thousands of new customers all at the same time. There's another exemption uh, or tool I should mention, which is called REGCF. It stands for Regulation Crowdfunding. It's a little bit different than Regulation A+. It allows a company to raise up to $5 million, and they can generally solicit or market the investment. And so there's a number of these new tools, and the common denominator to, to each of these is that they allow you to market the deal, and they allow the general public to legally invest. And so, like you said, for 80 years, you couldn't do that. A company couldn't market their investment, and the average American or the average retail investor certainly could not invest their hard-earned dollars into a private company. It was deemed too risky. And now that's changed. And I don't think we're going to go back from here. I think you know the SEC has just increased the cap. Now you can raise $75 million in Reg A+. Now you can raise $5 million under regulation crowdfunding or Reg CF. Wow. So these tools are going to become more broadly used by companies. And the net effect is that you're going to see better quality companies come into the ecosystem, companies that could have raised venture capital, could have gone to a family office, 
maybe could have even done a deal with a private equity investor, and they're going to consciously walk away from those traditional investors, and they're going to turn to the crowd. They're going to turn to their customers. They're going to turn to their fans and followers and empower those constituents to become investors in the company, thereby creating the most powerful army of brand ambassadors a company could ever dream of. And that's the future of capital markets, and it's happening right now. That sounds awesome. Um, I, I always felt the last 10 years have shown this to us that the venture capital process is pretty broken. Um, it is broken in general outside of the US. There have been a ton of uh, funds being able, VC funds being able to raise any money. And even in, inside in the US, I felt it that has really bifurcated. Either it was the pipeline deals, um, mostly driven by Vision Fund, where you basically had money from the from the Japanese fat and uh, you were able to uh, basically raise whatever you wanted. Uh, sure. I still remember a call with Intel a couple of years ago and uh, they asked me how much do I want to raise and I said, it's probably a lot of money, I'm not sure you, you're ready for this. And they were like, yeah, we have unlimited money. So if you if you say it's 100 billion, we can make that available to you uh, if the opportunity is um, big enough. And I thought that's what happened to the Vision Fund with the two 100 billion funds is that it a um, went into a very few selected opportunities from, and only with the state of purpose. And I think this is the state of purpose for venture capital in general. But it was it was oddly um, accelerated that you go into a pipeline into uh, a very soon to be seen IPO. And given that you only invest in one or two companies in that sector, that would be immediately a monopoly because nobody else can raise that much money because literally yes. there was only one investor around. And what happened is these companies are still able to go IPO um, if you if you have this nighting from the Vision Fund with a few exceptions. And uh, you, I never felt that these companies were, and that might be my pessimistic view on this, they were... Long-term growth stories. Some of them are. I mean, it's it's that's obviously too gen general. But there was an, an, a selection to create a lot of crap companies that were blown out of proportion and went IPO and that basically went under, which sounds like two thousand to me. Um, yeah, but still. Um, and and listen, you 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 make a great point, and and I think that it's accurate to say that in the past five years there have been a lot of companies that used these tools as a last resort. They failed to raise traditional capital. They couldn't attract uh, angel investors or VCs. And so equity crowdfunding was kind of a last-ditched effort to keep the company alive. That's changing now. And what we're seeing is companies that have every option of capital raising available to them, from a traditional Goldman Sachs-led IPO to a $25 million Series A uh, with a big billion-dollar fund, they, some of these companies, not all of them, but some of them are now leaning into a Reg A plus campaign because they see the value of marketing their brand. They see the value of turning customers into investors. And, and here's where this is really headed. And, and people, a lot of, I think, institutional investors don't understand this or appreciate it yet. But what's happening is there are companies right now that are uh, raising their first rounds using regulation crowdfunding, Reg CF or Reg A plus. And these companies, some of them are going to eventually go public, whether it's uh, at NASDAQ or on the New York Stock Exchange or London or Canadian Exchange. And then the institutional investors will follow the crowd. Can you believe that? Yeah. The smart money is going to come in after retail. 
And for, you know, I don't know, 100 years, it's been the opposite. It's been yes. smart money comes in first. You know, the, the angels, the VCs, the institutional investors get the sweetest terms, the best deals, all these kickers, warrants, this, that. And now they're going to follow the crowd. And the, uh, the guy down the street who put in 500 bucks is going to get a better deal than the fireman's fund or some pension or endowment. That's yeah. where this is going. And I honestly don't think that VCs see it coming. I don't think that institutional investors are paying attention uh, because this is still a burgeoning industry and these things haven't totally been realized, but that is happening right now. And that is where the market is going. I think that's really exciting. But the way you just described it, it's this insider advantage that most VCs had. We, we think of them as these wise men that make great decisions about the future and predict 15 years out. Now, what they do, they actually try and follow each other. And uh, they go into, they try to predict who's going to be the next buyer from me. And they don't know the product. They don't want to know the, the, the product that much. Um, there's very little influence. Again, that's the generalization. There's awesome VCs and there's terrible VCs. And the way that we um, empower consumers who, and I fully agree with you, who have the best idea of if this product is great or if it's just like anything else, just commoditized, they can be the best investors. And um, I, I thought it was a strong discrimination against the retail investor, especially in the early stages, because by the time they could get into these companies at the time of the IPO, they were basically extremely overvalued. And now you can get in um, at basically zero. You know, literally, it's a it's a it's it's a guy with an idea, and you can say, okay, I like that. And I think that was happening in in crypto uh, a couple of years ago. I think 2017. I don't know if they sure. left the way or if that was. And I don't even know what you think of the crypto space. It seemed to me from the outside really sketchy. It seemed to me I never participated in it, but these coins, some of it, you know, were worth a hundred times what they were the day before. It was very unpredictable from the outside. And um, companies were shady, but on the other hand, it seemed like, well, you can raise $100 million in crypto, and just like that. I thought that's amazing, and it would create a firestorm of entrepreneurship in that sphere. I'm not sure it did, uh, because I have never heard of these companies again. Maybe this no. Is I'm, 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 I'm lazy. No, it didn't. And look, the crypto space is ultra sketchy still. I'm not a fan of it at all, and partly because I was a victim of a hack where I lost some coins, I lost uh, a decent chunk of change. And uh, my guy was actually caught, convicted, sentenced to 10 years in jail. Um, and so I was actually lucky and I got some of my money back. But, you know, yeah. look, what, here's what we learned from the ICOs and, and that that kind of bull run. The first thing you, you, you see is that the, the little guy, the average investor, has a deep desire to participate um, in, in investment opportunities that could be lucrative. Right. And so was there a fear of missing out? Was there a hype? Was it a mania? Absolutely. But it showed you the power of the retail investor, individuals coming into deals by the thousands, tens of thousands. You know, and so there was a, a, a very tremendous demand for these investments that were purported to deliver, you know, incredible returns, of course, which they did not. The other thing I think um, we, we realize is that. Crypto and ICOs are a great example of what happens when there's no regulation and, and there, it's an unregulated market. And, and so what happens, if in case it's not clear, is it's rife with fraud. 
it, it markets that are not regulated draw bad actors. They draw bad people that have bad intentions into the space. And so it's a safe haven for the worst of the worst criminals and, 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 and shade, shady people um, because they're looking for a quick way to make a buck. And so it brings out all the con artists and it creates what's called a, a lemon market, right? It's like the, yeah. the products keep getting worse and worse and worse. And, and the retail investor doesn't have the same information that the insiders, the sponsors have. Hang on there. I, I'm, I'm with you um, to, an, to an extent. Um, do I have this libertarian dream? And I'm not sure if, I'm, I'm, if, if you know, we, we can go to, to a more economic philosophy. I have this dream still, and maybe that's just a dream, that given we have a lot of technology, we have a lot of transparency, and we have a lot of at least potential transparency, we have a lot of data about people, companies, at least, well, I mean, not, not for startups, but for, for companies that have been public for a while. If we had enough data, do we still need all the regulation? That's what I'm trying to get at. So isn't full transparency, and we, we can have regulation to be more transparent. I mean, this, this is where it gets a little gray. But wouldn't it be better to, to really go down the information route and then enable this maybe through regulation, but keep regulation as, as low as possible? And to be honest, I'm, I'm not sure what, what Reg A plus um, involves. So maybe that's exactly what it does. Maybe you, you can help me find out how this or help me understand. But regulation, I feel, is just going to put us back into a place where we've been and then you know, I don't. I, I assume the, the the laws that we had they were created in the 30s, right after the crash, and um, well, now we're just we're just reversing this. Um, but there's obviously the big risk if we don't do it right that we get into the next loss of trust. Yeah, look. So here here's what I think. I think regulation and transparency go hand in hand. And if you look at what regulation does in in the United States, and let's be clear, the United States has the most efficient capital market system on the planet, and it happens to be a highly regulated market. So I think we already have an example of what works, um, and ICOs, in my mind, that's an example of what doesn't work in an unregulated market. But regulation often requires or implies transparency, um, and usually it requires. So what does that mean? It means, um, let's use an example of a, of a traditional private placement, okay? This is kind of the way that a lot of companies have raised money for decades. You go to high net worth accredited individuals, and when they sign the papers, you have to disclose the risks. And there's usually two or three pages of risk, and it says, hey, this could happen, that could happen, this could happen, we're uncertain, we may not have the cash. And the investor signs off on that and say, you know, hey, I, I, I understand that I'm buying into a deal and there's some risk. Uh, and if you look at you know, a traditional IPO, companies that go public uh, here in the U.S., and there's other exchanges, of course, globally that have regulations and disclosure, of course, but they, the company puts out a 300-page filing, 500-page filing, and maybe 200 pages of those are risks. These are all the risks. Here's the things you should know as an investor. And so what happens is if there's not regulation, there's no incentive for a company to disclose anything. In fact, it's the opposite. They're, the, the incentive is for them to disclose as little as possible because the less the investor knows about the inherent risks with the investment, maybe the more likely they are to actually invest. So, of course, it's easier to raise money if you go out and say, hey, this thing's a slam dunk. You put in a dollar, you're going to get $2 out. 
and leave it right there. Hey, well, I'll give you 500% of your money in, in a year, you know, two years. Yeah. What are the risks? This is how this you know? ends, right? This is how this yeah. usually ends. And we have this example with the, with the Chinese companies. They're all listed on the NASDAQ. But they have completely turned this whole transparency idea upside down. They give you lots of paper, but it's completely useless. And 90% of them are probably scams. And that's, you know, sanctioned, officially sanctioned by the CCP, who thinks we're complete idiots. Why do we give them money if they are just a, a fraud story and we take your money in, in China and invest it into something that actually works? That's the factor is. I don't know if, if the Chinese leadership is in on this, but I can easily see that they might. And Yeah, look, you're, you're, you're right, Torsten, which is, you know, even regulated markets are imperfect. Re- even regulated markets don't prevent fraud. They don't prevent scams. You know, Bernie Madoff was operating in a regulated market and he still lied to people and executed one of the greatest Ponzi's ever. So it's not a surefire guaranteed strategy to eliminate fraud, but it definitely, I think, is the best strategy. And yet, as somebody who's now touting the value of regulation, I agree with you. I think regulation to a degree, right? And so if you look at Reg A plus and Reg CF, these are effectively, you know, a trend in deregulation. The prior regulation required that you only talk to people you know about your investments. You only go to accredited investors. Now that you can market your deal, now that you can let the average person put in a hundred bucks or a thousand dollars, that is effectively a deregulated tool. It's a deregulation, a trend in deregulation. Yes. And so I believe in that, but I don't think you can get away with a totally unregulated market um, because I think ICOs are a great example of that. And you know what I would hear a lot you know, two, three years ago was, this is great. Let's keep running these ICOs and let's raise 10 million here and 100 million there. And people would say, let's self-regulate. And unfortunately, it's a fantasy. People won't self-regulate. We've seen it time and time again. And you know, I think that 95% of ICOs were scams, were outright scams. And the other 5% that were legitimate were still absolute disasters for investors. And, you know, (laughs) you said it yourself. You're like, hey, how many hundreds of companies raised money for some game-changing technology or blockchain solution? Where are they? Who did it? Where's the next Jeff Bezos? Where's the next... I'm, know, I'm, with you. I'm with you. What I'm, that's why I'm digging in so much into this. And I, I know you're not a regulation guy, 100%. But what I'm trying to get at is, is there something behind all this? You know, regulations are, are like, well, that's why I made this example with China. On paper, it's easy to fulfill a regulation. Um, right. But in, in spirit, you might doing the opposite. Uh, like sure. Made of that. Maybe he actually didn't know. Yeah. He probably started and said, oh, it's going to be better in two years from now. So why don't we just nudge the numbers a little and then two years from now, we're going to be break even again. I don't know enough of the case, but I think this is how most of those people start. Yeah, what I'm trying yeah. to get at is there is something behind that that creates a marketplace where, where people are not where people are honest enough to actually put in paper what is supposed to be there. And it's not it doesn't mean it's 500 pages. Um, you know, Warren Buffett puts, I don't know, maybe it's 20 pages is any report. It's relatively short. And yes. it still outlines a lot of stuff that and Warren Buffett you know, runs a really risky business when you think of it. He doesn't have control over most or didn't used to have a lot of control over his business. Now he has more. What I'm trying to get at is, aren't there values that we can, we can prosper, identify, and then um, incentivize 
that actually make an honest marketplace. Obviously, regulation is kind of a bit of an outgrowth of this, but it's like the first wall of defense. The actual wall of defense is you have enough honest people in the system who you incentivize properly, and you, you have a way to identify the honest and the dishonest people to an extent. Obviously, it's never perfect. And I was hoping there is, there's like on eBay, it was the rating system, right? Remember that was a big deal before we knew yeah. like scam it. Um, yeah, right. Suddenly we, we knew um, this guy is not a total scammer, so I'm going to send him true. my laptop. Um, that's changed by now, but, but also because eBay didn't, didn't innovate anymore. What I was trying to get at is when we create new marketplaces like this, shouldn't we also innovate on the trust? Because this is what's missing in the public markets right now because they've been gamed by the Fed, they have been gamed by, by the individuals, by a lot of frauds, you know, Wirecard in Germany. It was rel- it's still relatively easy to actually make all this up. And obviously right. that attracts the bad people. But why don't we come up with a rating system that is, you know, in taking care of this headache on its own and scales away so we don't have to do regulation anymore? Look, if someone can solve it, it's a it's a trillion dollar opportunity. Um, it's enormous, and I I think uh, if there's a group that can solve for trust in capital markets, it's a it's a multi billion dollar, maybe a trillion dollar opportunity. And I hear what you're saying. In the eBay example, I think is pretty good. You know, I I'm somewhere in the middle, and and uh, I think regulation ultimately is necessary. I haven't seen a system uh, without regulation that has been successful. Uh, in capital markets and capital raising. And if I just look at the the framework of tools and exemptions that exist in here in the US, the regulation crowdfunding is a good example. You can you have a shot at raising up to five million dollars, yet you still need an auditor and you need a lawyer. And you have to file a form called a form C. But the good news is it's not a two hundred page filing and it doesn't cost a hundred grand. It might cost you five thousand dollars maybe $6,000. That's a fairly good trade for a first-time entrepreneur that wants a shot at raising five million bucks to have some rigor applied to the deal. Uh, an auditor, take a look at the financials and provide an assessment, a lawyer to provide um, some disclosure about risk. And, and that, to me, is a nice, healthy middle ground. And, you know, and, and so I, I think the system is working the exempt offering framework in the United States is exploding. There are hundreds of companies right now using these tools because they are relatively easy to do. It's not a huge ask or burden to uh, run a regulation CF or crowdfunding campaign. And uh, Reg A Plus, where you can raise up to $75 million, is a bit more involved. There's a bigger uh, audit requirement. There's a bigger legal requirement. The SEC actually reviews and has to qualify each offering. But hey, you know, you spend a hundred grand and you have a shot at raising $75 million and you can market your deal. That's a pretty good trade-off too. And there's yeah, been about I yeah, mean it's, it's, it's you know, going to all the VCs costs a lot of money too. And the, the problem is even if you maybe can get some initial interest, getting to a term sheet and having a term sheet that isn't like 99% in their favor and 1% in your favor is really hard because they've been doing this for 30, 40, 50 years and these term sheets are ironclad and you basically make no money besides your salary ever until the VCs made at least 10x. And that's By the how way, many that, of those that's, structured. That's going to go away in, in the early stage uh, venture capital yes. space. And honestly, those guys don't know it. They, they're not even paying attention here. I, I know yeah, they don't care. They, I've, I've talked to a couple of VCs lately. They're like, crowdfund? No, I mean, no, they yeah, don't get it's it. like crypto. And, 
it's like, here's the thing, you know, the VC is going to put out a term sheet and says, all right, you know, for uh, a million bucks, we want 40% of your business and a board seat and 2X liquidation uh, preference. That founder can go and run a million dollar campaign and maybe sell 20% of the company, sell common shares, no board seat, uh, no liquidation preference. And, yeah. and, and what's going to happen? And, and by the way, it's going to be easier for the founder to raise a million dollars in a reg CF campaign. It's easier. So, so what will happen? The leverage disappears. The leverage that early stage venture has on on, on an entrepreneur is going to dissipate slowly but surely suddenly that million dollars that the vc was offering is not as special in fact it's easy to come by now because you can run a marketing campaign on the internet and uh you'll you'll still have the ability to raise that capital so i think what that means is that these venture capitalists they're going to need to offer something beyond money these guys are going to get hired by the founder they're going to have to go up and put up a resume and say I'll put my money in. I'll be your chief operating officer. I'll be your general counsel because a million bucks ain't going to cut it for 30%. So the leverage is going to disappear. And venture so we have to be worried about the venture capitalists. They're going to all lose their jobs. The venture capitalists have to be worried about the venture capitalists. They're, yeah. they're going to have to uh, <laughs> they had a good innovate. Run, man. They had a good yeah. run. It was great while it lasted. They're going to have to innovate and change their business model uh, to find something more compelling than capital because that's going to be much easier to come by in the years ahead. I mean, this sounds awesome. This definitely sounds like an entrepreneurial dream to raise. You said um, the crowdfund was up to $7 million. The first, I still don't know the, the proper lingo. Yep. Reg CF, you can raise up to $5 million. Regulation A+, you can raise up to $75 million. And just to be clear, mm-hmm. those changes were approved by the SEC maybe three months ago. They're going to go into effect in sometime in early 2021, in the first quarter. They have to be published in the Federal Register. Once they are, they will be in effect, and that's going to happen early next year. You run a company now called issuance.com, right? And you, you, you've helped how many startups so far? We've worked with probably 40 companies in the last five years. We've helped these companies raise north of $300 million, uh, almost exclusively through Regulation A-plus offerings. And we license technology that allows these companies to run the entire financing on their own website and bring in hundreds or thousands of investors into their deal very easily. And we also provide marketing services and administrative support to companies running Regulation A-plus financings. We were involved in um, the first Regulation A-plus financing ever in 2015, and the last and most recent Regulation A-plus financing in a number of Regulation A plus or Reg A plus IPOs over the past five years. So uh, we we've been in the industry really since day one, and we have a lot of appreciation for the companies and the founders who are really the pioneers in our industry. It's the companies that are choosing to do these capital raises that are driving the growth of the industry, and we're one of the you know um, service providers that are kind of humbled and, and excited to be a part of the action. Uh, but we're a cog in the wheel at the end of the day. It's really the, the companies that are doing the raises that are driving the growth, and we're, we're part of the solution to help these companies get from point A to point B. Well, what is like a typical scenario? Like you, you mentioned that the one you're involved in is slightly bigger. 
So I assume this company had been around for a couple of years. Well, what would you think is like the, the average venture and where, do, does, where does the money come from? Is it, do they put it literally in their newsletter? Like I saw wine.com raise some money. Um, I, I've been using them, but that was probably last. I think they raised two million and it was oversubscribed. They told me, I have no idea if that's true, but they keep telling me it's right. oversubscribed. But give me an idea what the average startup looks like. Is it more lifestyle startup? And then how do they incentivize their customers? Or um, I don't know who actually partakes in these rounds to be in the round. And then what is the typical investment? Like if you average it down, what is like the 80-20 rule for this? Look, the average investment in this in this industry in the reggae space is about two thousand dollars. So the average wow. person who's participating in a reggae plus investment is investing two thousand dollars. They're doing that by credit card, wire transfer, ACH transfer, even an IRA retirement account, or they're mailing a check. Uh, yeah. The average company is usually an operating business that has two or three years of operating history. They've raised a seed round, and this is now like a Series A financing or equivalent. That said, there's companies that are pre-revenue, pre-product that have raised 10, 20, 30 million dollars. There's biotech companies that have raised 50 million dollars. So there are a number of really neat and interesting exceptions to the rule. But I would say on average, the the type of company that will do best in in this industry is a consumer products company that makes a physical product that has an audience of paying customers and if you've never seen the product, you don't use it and you hit a website, you would get it right away. It would be easy for you to understand what the product does, what the business does. It would also be easy for you to understand how the business makes money, how they generate revenue and profit. Uh, those types of companies are usually very good fits for Regulation A plus or equity crowdfunding in general. Is that something that Etsy already include? I, I just think of Etsy, like you're the entrepreneur and you 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 put this like a. I don't actually know what what the current model for them is, but you really thrive on physical products that you have, you know, a unique edge over, you have a unique design over. They're obviously often made in China, but they're, they're coming out of your out of your your head, so to speak. And then they're already shipped for quite some time. And maybe you, you create a brand around this. Is that something that, that that makes sense or is that, you know, there's just too many of them and it's, it has to scale up to a point to really uh, be able to raise that much money? Yeah, it's a good and question. What are the, the valuations like? That's what I'm curious about. The, the valuations range. I mean, they range from 10 million to 300 million. They're really all over the place. It just depends on the deal, the company, where they're at in their operational, um, you know, kind of their their plan, their execution. Yeah, I don't know if the average company that sells on Etsy is a good fit for this, but you know, company doing 10, 20 million in sales and has 10,000 customers, um, maybe okay. they would be. Not to pr- not to say that company can't sell something on Etsy. But I think on average, Etsy is a marketplace for, you know, kind of craft entrepreneurs, craft products. You know, now what we're doing is we've created a television show where we're putting these companies in a TV series and we're letting the viewers follow the company week after week as they're raising capital. And some of them are even going public to NASDAQ. And for the first time ever, the viewers of the show can invest into the deals. And so that's kind of the, the, the linchpin of this industry. It's, you know... The, the real question for companies that raise capital like this is how do they market their investment? How are they going to get the right audience and the right volume of that audience to, to see the deal? And so it's, yeah. it's kind of a marketing conundrum. You either have a great way to market the investment. You've got a built-in audience. You've got a financial publisher that will provide coverage and promote the deal. You go in this TV series. You spend $100,000 in Facebook ads. You've got an email list. 
there has to be some hook. There has to be some way for the company to create mass awareness for the deal. That's the single biggest challenge. And it's also the single biggest success factor. So companies that can effectively market the investment to a strong audience of likely investors, they will succeed. They'll raise a million. They'll raise 5 million. They'll raise 30 million. Companies that can't figure out the marketing are going to fall flat on their face and they will fail. So that's kind of the excitement uh, of what's involved here is companies that are savvy marketers or can hire savvy marketers or come up with creative ways to market the investment. They have a good shot at raising capital. And again, at the end of the day, that puts the power in the control of the founder because they control their marketing. And it reduces the dependence on the venture capitalist that's going to try to get some traditional term sheet slammed in and take ownership, take over the company, you know, buy, buy the business or, you know, all these weird provisions that you don't want to do or agree to as a founder. You can avoid that now and you got to figure out the marketing to be successful. So we are in the attention economy. If you have enough attention, you can do anything. That's you a can fact. be the next president. That's a fact. We've seen that. Yeah, we've seen that, right? It worked out at least once. That's good to hear. And obviously for, for entrepreneurs, that's a great message. I, it's, it's gotten harder, I feel, to get enough attention. But on the other hand, once you're here, there's a, there's a lot of avenues that co-promote you um, that I think weren't around 20 years ago. So there's a lot of saturation out there. And I think it's only going to get worse. But the good news is if you if, say your video does well on YouTube or your podcast is very popular, or you go on Joe Rogan, um, I mean, there, there is avenues that are ready for you. It's just it's shifting a lot. What I've noticed is we, 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 we have these, these periods of startups go along with marketing innovations. And uh, so 2000 was SEO when Google was near, where you could be on, on Google number one and you, you could hire someone who would say, okay, I promise you, you're going to be number one. You don't have to pay me. And then that went away. We went into AdWords and there were tons of cheap keywords to buy. And this was very entrepreneurial for a couple of years. And then it went away. And then we went to Facebook, and then we had free Facebook and an incredible amount of traffic for really weird sites. And um, that went away, and we had Facebook buying traffic that went away. Then we went to YouTube. YouTube still gives everyone free traffic, but it's kind of at the end of that. And um, now we all went to TikTok, and uh, that seems to be a real problem for most people to make money of TikTok traffic. It, what do you think is the next marketing revolution? Uh, one is just, you know, what's an 80-20 rule? I build businesses just off SEO, and that was easy, right? It wasn't hard. And then I built businesses off email communication, which was also easy. But now it's really hard. These avenues still exist, but you need, it needs to be more tired, no more better adjusted to your audience. You need to be more lucky, I feel. It's kind of like going up and down Sand Hill Road, and 30 people say no, and one guy says, I love your product, whatever you want. I'll, I'll give you that term sheet. How, do you have any any tips for entrepreneurs? What is like the next revolution in marketing? What are like safe paths out there? Well, look, I mean, for for, for our industry, we, we have a very clear and strong opinion about it. And we believe that the future of capital markets is content driven, that companies that can create the right content and then plug into a network, CNBC, entrepreneur.com, Netflix, Disney, Amazon, that is the future of capital raising, uh, content marketing, and that's where we've made our bet. And I, I think a lot of people in our industry might um, might not see that yet, but it, in a lot of ways, it's very simple to explain. You've got all these big publishers and platforms. They already have the audience. They already have it. Amazon has it. Next, Netflix has it. Um, 
you could be a no-name filmmaker and you've got a great idea and Netflix is going to pay you, you know, 10 million bucks, go make a horror film. Suddenly you're somebody because they've got the distribution channel. They've got the pipes. Yes. They've got the audience. The key is to plug in to a network or platform that already has the audience. That's precisely what we're doing with the Going Public show. We've signed a deal with Entrepreneur Media. They run the website, entrepreneur.com, 15 million monthly unique visitors. They have another series out that does 1.7 million unique viewers per episode. That's how we create mass awareness for an investment. Uh, after that, we'll go to Amazon. We'll go to Disney. We'll go to Netflix. This is how I think uh, other people in our industry should be thinking about the future of capital raising. So I, I'm kind of answering it very specific to capital markets um, and, and how we create So reality paradigm. TV, like I hear, I hear, I hear the, the reality TV or like film-driven content, which I think is, is wonderful. It's just, is really, it's, it's, it's at a certain scale, it's not hard to do, but it's hard for, for, smaller, for smaller ventures and uh, less experienced entrepreneurs, or maybe not. No, absolutely. But, Definitely not easy. Not easy. And listen, it's, it's a model that at the I mean, moment, you can't call up Disney, yeah. right? I mean, no, you, can you, go can't. Viral, you can go viral on TikTok, but you can't call up Disney. I mean, you guys maybe can, but even then, they're gonna be, it's going to be two years before they say, oh, yeah, we're going to put this into our back catalog maybe, and we're going to do a little promotion. I mean, this is like, it's kind of like going to a VC. You know, that's, you, you have these 20 places on Central Road, And they have all the keys and they can dictate the terms and they know it and they do it every day. You know, you, you're kind of shifting from, okay, we don't have to talk. The VCs are not the gatekeepers anymore, but now it's Disney or entrepreneur.com. I mean, there's many brands out there. I'm, no, I'm just using this as an example. What, what I found so interesting with Google in 2000 is everyone, you know, you could compete with everyone on the planet, but you could kind of show off your skills in this marketing battle. And if you're good enough, you would be selected by your customers because it was easy to reach them. I mean, I like the Netflix example, but it's still not easy to get listed on Netflix, right? I mean, you would start with YouTube for, for a couple of years. Yeah, look, you're right. And I mean, at the same time, I would say, look at Shark Tank. How many hundreds of companies have been featured on Shark Tank in the last 10 years? Maybe thousands of companies at this point. So it yeah. might have started off and it was like, oh my God, it's, if I could only get on Shark Tank. Now I feel like everybody knows somebody who's been on the series. Um, that's <laughs> what we aim to create. Now, look, I, I, I do think that Uh, social media, there's a lot of platforms there that, that are, are needing content. So if I'm a founder, I'm going on LinkedIn. I'm trying to create an audience on LinkedIn. I'm going to TikTok. Um, those are platforms where you have an opportunity to build an audience organically very quickly. You got to be authentic. You have to have an opinion. You've got to be active. You have to post often and aggressively. But those are platforms where great content Uh, goes to the top. Otherwise, you sure. know, you're going to be buying ads on Facebook and buying ads on Instagram and buying ads on other platforms. But there are platforms right now where you can very quickly amass an audience if you have a, a, a strategy for getting your message out there. Uh, I've been able to do this on LinkedIn. I've seen others do it. Gary Vaynerchuk talks about it. Right now, I feel like LinkedIn and, and TikTok, obviously vastly different platforms and audiences But those are two good starting points where you can build a surprisingly large audience quickly without a lot of money. You know what I heard, which I think is a great shortcut, is, uh, and I've done this myself, I have to admit. So if you have a new product and you're thinking of investing, it doesn't have to be a million-dollar investment. It can be a relatively small investment, but it's a new product. You just talk to a founder and they say, you know, we have this in mind. 
And you're like, okay, so who's buying this? And they say, oh, we don't know, maybe consumers, I don't care. We haven't thought about that. It's a really early stage. But what you can do on LinkedIn is literally just select your audience. That could be your connections. It could be new connections. And yes. can give them a ping and say, we want to try it for free. Or do you think this is a cool product? You can basically be an honest question. You know, I'm, I'm thinking about investing. Would you buy this? And uh, you realize people either give you an immediate re reaction or they just usually on LinkedIn, there's no reaction, right? So like or most most places. So if you get a lot of quick feedback back, you feel like, whoa, this could be something. Like I think for founders, this is this is a real great shortcut. And don't spam LinkedIn, but just talk to like 50 connections and, and ask them, do you think this is a good product? And I think this is such a good shortcut. It's a small sample size. If you select them properly and you screen them and you have those are people who would fit your audience potentially, you get a lot of value feedback. And I must say this anecdotal evidence has for, for myself has proven very true. So things that, that even at an yes. early stage, maybe it's not the right product yet and there's a lot of changes, but you get a message back and says, okay, tell me more. And that's your future customer. If you get no, nothing back, then obviously you might have targeted the wrong audience, but even 50 right. people give you a really good idea. I know this is a wonderful growth hack. But listen, you're spot on. And, and by the way, like, switching hats or switch, shifting gears to talk about like startup strategies. That's one of the smartest things a founder can do is seek feedback from customers. It's shocking how many entrepreneurs skip over this. They just launch, they build something, they think there's a need. They don't, they don't test it. They don't audit themselves. They don't um, engage. They want to be the Steve Jobs. They just want to go. They're like, I've seen the future. Mm -hmm. I'm going to build this. <laughs> and I think it's, I think it's really a big mistake. Honestly, I think, uh, most entrepreneurs would be very wise to get feedback from customers. And you hear this over and over again. It's like, how did you build this great product? And someone's like, you know, I went on the street corner. I talked to 50 people a day for a week and I figured out there was a need for DoorDash, you know, whatever it is. But that, that's a really smart um, strategy. And I, I think that more entrepreneurs would benefit from taking the approach you just you just talked about. Yeah, it's free almost, or basically it is free. Maybe it costs a few hours of your time. And you save yourself the hassle a couple of years down the line. One thing I wanna wanna talk to you about is so there's this this kind of a, a bigger a bigger topic is the question of how what kind of investments do we need in order to drive up this entrepreneurial process we talked about in the beginning. And there's a lot of talk, and I just read The Entrepreneurial State, um, and uh, it's an interesting book that basically puts out this thesis that government or state can be as entrepreneurial as a startup. And I was okay. shocked to read that, and it goes deeper. And the, what, what, what the author claims, and I'm not fully, I don't fully agree with this, but I think it's pretty relevant. She claims that um, a government, like, for instance, take Singapore, that takes an early stage investment into core technologies. So things that might be completely ridiculous right now have no practical application, but it's core technology and puts a certain amount of money into it, kind of like what DARPA does, but there's different ways of doing this. And it comes with this core core research. And she makes that claim that the iPhone is basically 99% funded by the government. And it, Apple shouldn't have, been, sure. shouldn't have been allowed because all the money is basically this taxpayer innovation. So there is, there is this offset that you said that earlier without marketing, we can't raise anything. But if I'm saying, um, maybe that's a bad example, but I want to do the space elevator. There is a lot of people I can, I can show them a picture in a drawing, but beyond that, you know, it's not going to have a practical application for 10, 15, 20 years. And I can sell them some more science fiction. I can say, oh, I want to have houses on Mars, and then I can be Elon Musk, or I can, have, I can make a story, a narrative around this. 
But what's yes. happening is we, we are moving from a real company into narrative investment. We can say clean tech. I, I have to put, I'm a fund and I have to put 5% into clean tech because my voters said so. Sure. What I'm trying to say is what role can crowdfunding play into these long-term investments that are often more fundamental and a lot of people say this is actually what needs to be more of um, because these things have, have potential to change the world, not just by trillion, but by hundreds of trillions over the course of a decade. Is that something a crowdfund can do or you say that's not going to happen? Someone else has to do it. Well, you know, look, for, for a lot of these um, these big ideas, you know, they call moonshots, I think, a lot of these companies require substantial or incredible amounts of capital to have a shot. Um, maybe it's a quarter of a billion dollars. And at the moment, that's a near impossible outcome uh, from, from, a, from a crowdfunding standpoint. What's, what's more realistic is that company turns to the crowd at an early stage, maybe the beginning, and they raise 5 million, 10 million, 20 million to launch the business. They might not get the prototype, They might get more of a design. Who knows? Um, so I do think crowdfunding can contribute as part of the life cycle. I don't know that crowdfunding, uh, equity crowdfunding, will be the right strategy to fund some of these moonshot concepts that require uh, substantial sums of money that, you know, um, th there's a handful of investors that are going to be able to do that in one fell swoop. And, and so, yet I think there's a role. Uh, and You know, look, I, I happen to believe that the cure for cancer, uh, there's a high probability it will be crowdfunded, that it will be equity crowdfunded, and it will be a company that doesn't fit the criteria for a traditional investor and yet may have success, um, you know, turning to equity crowdfunding to start. I, I believe that's a possibility, uh, and I hope that's, I hope that's the case. Um, so that you know, a lot of these causes and a lot of these moonshot ideas, they do have mass appeal. They have appeal not just to big investors with deep pockets. They have appeal to people around the world that want to make a difference and believe in the cause, believe in the vision, um, you know, believe in sustainability, a cleaner future, um, things that are environmentally friendly, uh, things that have impacted them, their mom, their dad, their family, people, their friends. And so these are now you're getting into, you know, kind of cause based um, fundraisings that I think are great fits for crowdfunding, whether that's biotech, med device, energy. And so certainly crowdfunding can play a role, although it may not be the number one strategy to raise the ultimate amount of capital that's needed for these companies to have a shot at success. Do you think the U.S. Um, especially should invest more into basic research? So literally take... I don't know what it takes, um, a trillion dollars maybe, a good chunk of money, 10% of GDP, 20% of GDP, and put it into basic research. Obviously, enriching initi initially researchers, PhDs, professors. Do you think that's a good idea or this, this has to be market-driven? Because the obvious, the obvious issue there is that the, the long-term research is potentially huge, but you might go in a completely wrong direction and you just produce paper and nothing ever happens. And it's kind of like, like a Chinese state-run company But on the other hand, it can make huge impacts that, that, that I feel we've, we've been really stuck into, you know, more short-term investments, social media, at least things that we've seen um, really, really hit the, uh, out of the park. What's your personal opinion on this? I, you might not be an expert on this. 
Uh, definitely not an expert, but I feel like Elon Musk and Tesla and SpaceX in particular are good examples of where where the future is and, and where the markets are going. You know, NASA is funded by the government for how many decades? And look what an, uh, a brilliant and driven entrepreneur was able to do, essentially leapfrog NASA from an innovation technology standpoint. And uh, now it looks like SpaceX will be the first company to send a rocket to Mars, maybe in the next decade, maybe in the mid-2020s, I think, according to Musk. And why wasn't NASA able to do that? You know, they've got all these government resources and all this access to funding, but something that- Yeah, but I mean, he he probably hired 5,000 people from NASA. You know, I mean, this this is like the the, 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 the NASA, it came only into being and had success in the 60s because it hired every single Nazi who knew about rocket technology. And, you know, not just Mr. Van Braun, there were tons of other people. So you, you can always trace it back, and that's obviously the, the, the problem with this, because we have so many layers of innovation, you can always trace it back to some government funding. But obviously you need both, right? You need the government funding, and you need the, the entrepreneur who makes, actually makes it work. Well, a lot of people say, oh, we are in this stagnation because the consumers have not adopted, or maybe the entrepreneurs haven't built good products, or maybe there wasn't enough research for basic, um, for basic research. You know, listen, I, it's, a good, po- it's yeah. a good point. I, I still think that, Based on what we're seeing, and again, I just I, I look at SpaceX as such an, an incredible example of what's possible. I, yeah. I think it's proof that you know government there's too much bureaucracy and red tape. There's not enough out of the box thinking, and and honestly, there's a lack of leadership. And it takes a visionary individual. It takes a visionary entrepreneur to really shift the tectonic plates in an industry which is what Musk has done in a very short time frame. I think that is a model for uh, where we're headed. I don't think it means that governments shouldn't put uh, money into research or into programs that are designed to do good. And maybe you're right, Torsten, maybe it's you need both. You need funding and research that's government-sponsored, and you couple that with a visionary entrepreneur that is incredibly, insanely ambitious, um, to the point that they are destined to succeed through sheer will and perseverance. Maybe that, maybe that's a better model. Yeah. It's hard to, to, to draw the lines there. Um, one thing we talked about um, before is, you know, you have your own, your own entrepreneurial ups and downs as, as we all have. And you mentioned about the intensity, the way that felt to you, or I don't, I don't know the specifics, but, um, can you share some of those stories on the, the way how you how you you have like found an emotional way to deal with this? Because I think a lot of people are scared by this, especially like you go through funding, you, you maybe raise five million, and then you realize what you wanted to build doesn't work at all. So you either have to pivot, you you kind of do something completely different, or you maybe uh, throw in um, the towel. At what point do you decide? Okay, this is this is just a low. I'm, I'm keep let's keep going. At what point do you decide? No, this is crap. We we got to build a new company or we do, I just got to do something you know, What's kind of your gut feeling? Look, I'm, I think in my own experience, I think it takes a certain amount of time and experience as a founder to be comfortable being a founder. Um, you can be, you can leave your day job and become an entrepreneur and be terribly uncomfortable with what's happening in your business every single day. You can have sleepless nights, whether you raise money or not. And, and so for me personally, I, I guess I can only speak to my own experience. I think it took me 
five years, maybe six years to finally settle into a comfort zone. And what that meant for me is that I could get hit with anything. It doesn't matter if it's um, running out of money, investment not coming through, deals falling apart, lawsuits, you name it. And it's just more shit I got to put out of the way and move on. And, and it used to be incredibly stressful. I would lose sleep over it. My head would race every night, every single night. What if this? What if that? What if this doesn't work? We only have two months of runway. We only have 30 days of runway. What if I can't pay back this line of credit? Is Wells Fargo going to come after me and put a lien on my house? And I think at a point, you learn as a successful founder how to manage those feelings and you compartmentalize. And you realize that these are things that happen. And in order to be successful, they're going to happen. There's no such thing as just infinite success and no obstacles. It's a myriad of obstacles. And, and for me, I learned how to compartmentalize those challenges on an emotional level and get them out of the way. There's a problem. I address it, acknowledge it, figure out how to solve it or attempt to solve it, assign it, delegate it, move on to the next. And I, I'm a much happier person now. And I, I've kind of accepted things can work, things can fail, but it's the ability to get back up and just move through these things quickly that that is most important. Uh, and again, it took me five or six years and, and man, those five or six years were brutal. They were terrible. Uh, you know, the amount of stress and then that stress is visible. You see it on somebody's face. My wife would see it. My kids would see it. Your team sees it. Investors see it. They sense your uncertainty. They can sense fear and people aren't stupid. And, um, now I've kind of learned to overcome that. And so to me, I think it's just, you've got to be in the hot seat for, for long enough. You have to deal with a bunch of shit and figure out how to solve it and solve it confidently. And, you know, with, with a a smooth, um, attitude about it and, and kind of even attitude because it can destroy you. It can, it can eat you up. Um, in some, in some cases kill you, right? There's, there's a high suicide rate with entrepreneurs because the stress is so intense. So I think I'm on the other side of that. And I try to make myself available, um, to, to others who are going through this because there's nothing like it. It will test you to your core. It will test you as a human being to your soul. You know, who are you really? Uh, can you, are you equipped to deal with all of the, the, the challenges and the uncertainty and the frustrations and the losses and disappointments because it's a consistent battle. And even in success, it's just, there's more things that come your way. And, you know, it's, um, it's really tough, but I think time is the best, uh, time and experience are the best teachers. And so the longer you, you deal with these things, the, the more equipped you are to, um, overcome them. I, I hear you. Uh, this, this, I think all of us, we have to go through this. This is insane sense of euphoria. Um, it's almost like it's, it's like being bipolar, um, but not on your mats because these, these positive emotions can be as strong as the negative ones. And you can feel, and I feel like Elon Musk is on this sometimes on TV. He's like in a different universe. You feel like you, 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 you get this insane high, um, this maniac phase. It's, it's more stretched out, so it's not next week that you fall from it, but it might be two years from now, it might be three months from now. And you, you look back and you're like, okay, actual difference, how much money I made. I mean, 
those weren't that big, but the, the emotional t- uh, differences were ginormous between the maniac phase and the depressed phase. And uh, yes. so I'm, I've been I've been looking in the literature literature about uh, people who are bipolar, um, how they manage without meds, um, how they how they go back, do they write diaries, how they start to reflect, and uh, that definitely helped me a lot. It's something we see in children today because if you um, if you see how People interact with social media. It's kind of a bit like an entrepreneur. It doesn't have the same monetary um, investment, but it has this emotional investment, 100%. You know, teenagers have this emotional investment into whatever they do on social media. And then they're being tested to the core, as you say, because there's so much negative feedback, and there's also a lot of positive feedback. Who should I listen to? Is the positive feedback my validation, or is the negative feedback my anti-validation? Should I change? Should I change tomorrow? Should I change the next six years? Um, how, how does my time horizon look like? Do I have to just block these people? You know, those are basic decisions, but I think it's the same the same attitude we talk about. And a lot of kids have these today. They get really popular. You get a couple million YouTube followers. And you got so much shit thrown at you every single sure. day. How, how do you deal with this when, you, when you're 25? But think about you're 13. How do you deal with this and not go insane? I, I find this pretty, pretty stunning that kids are able to do that. I think you're right. I mean, it's a whole, it's a, it's a type of pressure that, I mean, I can't even fathom, right? And you see these TikTok stars with 30 million followers, it, it blows your mind. But look, taking it back to founders and, and kind of overcoming obstacles, my biggest piece of advice, which is not widely spoken about or recommended or even conventional, but I think is an absolute superpower for anybody listening right now to this podcast is to try sobriety, go sober, stop drinking, stop smoking, stop taking drugs, quit all of it. I have been sober, Torsten, for seven years, and my sobriety is the foundation, the foundation, the bedrock to my success as an entrepreneur. Believe me, seven years ago, I wouldn't have imagined ever saying that to anybody, and yet it was a game changer. The odds as a founder are against you. Most businesses fail. Most startups fail. So how do you increase your odds of success? Take out all the negative behavior. Take out the hangovers. Take out the loss of focus. And quit. Try going sober for 90 days. See how you feel. Go six months. Go one year. I've gone seven years. I haven't looked back. Only after I quit drinking was I able to leave my day job and go all in on my own company because my own company started working when I quit drinking. And it wasn't failing. It just worked much better when I quit drinking. And so the the best way for me to describe it is when I was drinking and I was a big Napa cab red wine guy, I would drink. I'd go through, you know, two bottles a week, three bottles a week with friends with, with, with myself over the course of an evening, um, not blacking it sound out. terrible. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's not insane, but I would say I was like at 95% effectiveness as a human. And I had a great career and day job and I was making money and things were working, but I was 95%. I quit drinking and over about a two year period, I went from 95% to 96, maybe 97, right? Cause you can always improve. People are imperfect yeah. by nature but that one or 2% difference was game-changing, life-changing. The, the, it, it compounded over time. 
a little bit more focused, a little bit more productive, a little bit more effective, a little bit more persuasive, the words I would choose. I would get up a little bit earlier, put a little more time into my business. And over time, it worked. And you know, you read you read these things, you, you read TechCrunch or articles, and people don't talk about this, but sobriety is a superpower. And I used to be a big drinker, a big smoker, and I don't have any shame in saying I liked the, the feelings of being high. I liked smoking weed. I liked uh, being at a party. I liked drinking red wine at a steak dinner. I liked the social aspect. I liked all of it. And so it's scary for people because most people like these things too. They like, they like the buzz, but there is a better future uh, as an entrepreneur. And if you're serious, if you are dead serious about being successful, if in your mind you are destined to be an entrepreneur, you want to give it a shot, or you are a founder and you're looking for an edge, I am telling you right now, this is the biggest secret superpower on the planet, and everybody listening should give it a shot. They should all try. It's a very powerful statement. And um, we, we've, we've just seen the death of Tony C.A., who was the CEO of Zappos and uh, worked last couple of years in his life. And apparently it was, you know, induced mostly by drugs and by alcohol. He, he had a serious um, addiction issue and uh, he, he wasn't poor. You know, he, he had all the money in That's the world. Right. He, he, That's he, right. didn't have, he didn't have to work. He could just, uh, you know, I don't know, become a fitness nut or a philosopher. But he, he definitely succumbed to this. And you, you can see as an entrepreneur, but it's, so hard emotionally we all have that problem but how do you shut off after 12 hours of looking at your computer and then you have two hours of watching a movie and how do how do you make yeah. your brain feel that this is the relax and this is the work and vice versa and now you should relax so the drugs really help with this um is i i'm not a, i'm not a, um don't want to promote drugs at all but the drink at night uh, it starts with one, then it becomes two. And it's that the problem is the first drink is not the problem. The problem is it makes uh, all of these things are addictive. Otherwise, people wouldn't come back. And then you go into That's two, right. then three. But you you're like, oh, how do I fall asleep if I don't drink? And you're like, I can't because I tried. And then for a week you can't fall asleep. And you're like, okay, let's go back or sleeping pills, whatever that is. We all have that problem, and it's more emotional it gets, and it's more stakes are involved as higher that is. And I always felt but, but that I don't want to excuse bad behavior. And then I always bring up the example of Warren Buffett because he might have terrible traits. I don't know. I don't know him personally, but he manages what a hundred billion, 150 billion. I don't know what, what it's worth. So if you just extrapolate your own 150 million or your 50 million, whatever you manage and say, okay, but if I manage more money, I should be more crazy. And you're like, no, you would be dead already. So you got to you got to put this together and say to yourself, okay, if it's just more money and he has more responsibility, so to speak, but he still has the same problems, but he manages this on this grand scale without going crazy, yes. at least from what we know. Well, who knows what he he's been doing in his dungeon? I don't think he has one. So, uh, well, listen, what, what, everybody should try. It. Everybody should try it, and um, I just think it's uh, it's such an opportunity, and. You know, you 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 want to give it everything you have. It's so hard to to be a founder and to run run a successful company and to to really break through. And um, I think more more founders should uh, should go for it and and give it a one, shot. Then one last thing that that I um, and I know you you I want to be very conscious of your time. Uh, one one last thing that I felt is it, I would predict differently is how 
entrepreneurs interact with religion. And for a time, religion was a, a big driver for people. And then they, 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 they would, would become slightly less strict in their rules, like what we've seen in the early 20th century. We've seen this back in the 12th century. So this is a recurring theme. I always feel religion should play a bigger role in entrepreneurship. It, it kinda, they they kind of have nothing to do with each other. There's maybe one guy who is religious, the next guy isn't. I would say 99%, and I, I take the San Francisco experience, 99% of the um, founders in San Francisco never looked into religion at all. Maybe they do some meditation, but that's about it. That's a really interesting and like a kind of like out of left field comment or question. And I think it's actually really interesting. You know, I feel like religion provides um, community. It provides a support system and a network. And I got exposed to the Mormon community a few years ago on the East Coast. And what I realized is that there's a lot of Mormon billionaires. There's a lot of yeah. very, very successful Mormon entrepreneurs. And I, I wish I could tell you why that is. I, somebody out there listening probably knows it. Like, well, here's why. Here's what they do. And here's how the you know upbringing works. And they support each other like this. But it struck me like there's something about that community and that culture and that uh, network and uh, upbringing that uh, really encourages people to be self-sufficient, to rely on themselves. And um, I, I, I just have a sense that there are a, a lot of very entrepreneurial people in that community. Um, and look, you don't have to be a billionaire to be successful. Um, you know, one of my friends is a guy who runs a publicly traded company called Lovesack, Sean Nelson, who lives in Utah. And, uh, you know, so, but there's something about that, that that's really interesting, Torsten, that's probably worth looking into. Now you've got me intrigued and I, I'm going to look into it, but I think you're right. I think there's something about the sense of community or values that can play into entrepreneurial success that that's worth, you know, worth, worth digging into. I noticed this when I went through all the the the, the old texts um, and this the value system and the way they they, they envision the future. Um, you know, entrepreneurship is a self fulfilling prophecy. You you create a better prophecy, you get enough people to buy into it, so everyone's going to be better off, and it, and also GDP grows. And the same is true for these values of, and I think this is why these religions are still around. Otherwise, we would never heard of them because they create that same value system that makes everyone better off. So the pie is growing, kind of like Adam Smith, but he didn't know that his values were basically the Old Testament. He, he didn't know, he didn't realize that because it was so implicit in the, in the times in the 18th century. But I sure. think capitalism is, exists without religion, but there is a lot to it that comes from the Old Testament. And other religions for do sure. that too. That just seems to be a winner, uh, at least for, for us. It seems to be implicit still in, in, in culture as well. I think it's a great Anyways. point. Anyways, um, on that note, um, we have something for the next podcast. Let's see here. You tell me. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm saying we can talk about religion in the next podcast and oh, see yeah. what influences oh, really there you go. Yeah. And by that time, you're going to be a billionaire. Um, and uh, this, the, the, uh, the show on entrepreneur.com is going to really take off. Thanks for Thanks, doing this, man. Darren. This was awesome. Torsten, Thanks for taking the time. My pleasure. Thank you for having me on. Same yet. Looking forward to next time. Thank you.